Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. So as I was uh, preparing for tonight's message, I came across an academic article on marriage, really the marriage process in the ancient world, the marriage process in the ancient world, and wanted to share some interesting points from that article and research. So one, and and some of these aren't going to be super surprising to you, uh, but one interesting point is that in most ancient cultures, the parents were the primary matchmakers in marriage, right? And that's, that's not surprising. In fact, uh, in some of the ancient cultures, if the parents didn't give approval, the marriage was invalid. It was invalid. So parents were big matchmakers. Uh, in most, well, in relating to that, some cultures, the consent of the girl was sought after and desired, but in a lot of the cultures, it didn't matter. It was all about what the parents agreed to and arranged. Uh, in most ancient cultures, girls were married between the ages of 12 and 18, most being married by the age of 15. And men could be as old as mid to late 20s. In Egypt, they were younger, same with Israel. But uh, in Greece and Rome, the guys could be typically in that older 20-something range. Uh, Egypt, the marriage was more about romance. There was more emphasis on romance in Egypt. But in Greece and Rome, it was all about just the family and carrying on the family name. There wasn't always a lot of romance involved. In the early Christian communities, girls seemed to have married at a slightly older age. And the consent of the girls was valued a lot more. So that's a positive turn for for the Christian communities at least. Now, when it came to the beginning of the process, in the ancient world, the marriage process began with what is called betrothal. So betrothal is what it was called, which is the rough equivalent of engagement in, the, in our modern American context. And in the ancient world, betrothals were, were initiated by a promise to marry and an exchange of a financial gift, either called a dowry or a bride price. Now, the bride price, that was, if, if it was a bride price, that is a financial gift from the husband's side of the family or the groom's side of the family. If it was a dowry, that came from the, the woman's side of the family. And just to give you some perspective, so for the bride price, the, in, the, in the situations where it was the man giving the gift, in ancient Babylon, the bride price could be the equivalent of almost a year's worth of wages, so a lot, a lot of money in, uh, in Israel. The price for a bride is even higher, arguably. You could say it's, it would be the price of a house in, uh, in ancient Israel. Um, so that's bride price. Dowry, uh, which was common in some cultures, uh, that was also a financial gift, but usually that remained in the wife's possession. So it's kind of like security for her. And if, let's say there was a divorce and if she was blameless, meaning, you know, she, she wasn't, she didn't violate some law, then typically the, uh, the wife would keep the dowry. So in both the bride price and the dowry, the, their, their function seemed to be financial security. And uh, for example, the bride price that could almost be seen as like a guarantee from the husband to his wife and to the wife's family that she would be provided for. 
So in case that he died or divorced her, she would have the family and she would have some money to support her. She wouldn't be left completely destitute. Now, in our modern context, we don't have bride prices. We don't have dowries. And, and it wasn't always money. It could also be like livestock, you know, so, you know, you can marry my daughter for so many cattle or so many sheep or sometimes, as in the case of King David, it was actually killing so many warriors in battle and then you can marry my daughter. So it depended on the family and, and what they agreed to. In our modern context, you have like life insurance policies, court-ordered child support and alimony payments, if you don't know what that is, like all these things, that kind of takes the place of the bride price in the uh, dowry today. So we don't really have that anymore there's not really a need. Also, with, with more career opportunities for women in our culture, you know, we, families just don't do that anymore like they did in the ancient world. Now, when it came to the, the wedding ceremonies, so moving from the engagement to the wedding ceremonies, this is where it gets a little interesting. Talk about fashion first. Does that sound good, ladies? Talk about fashion. So in Rome, in the ancient Roman world, the girls typically wore both white and purple in their wedding. And sometimes their veils would have like orange in them and stuff. So more colorful. And uh, the, 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 the groom, the man, would, would have like colorful garments as well. On, in the Roman world, on the morning of the wedding, there was usually a pagan ritual that involved the sacrifice of like a pig to a pagan god and with a, with a pagan priest that would be involved. So this would actually, I was thinking when I was reading this, this would be another reason why Christians, especially in that time, could not marry non-Christians. And all, in addition to all the reasons that we talked about, uh, also, I mean, a Christian could not, you know, go through these pagan ceremonies, right? So, but that, that would happen. In Egypt, on the other hand, there was no, there's no evidence of very much religious ceremony that would take place at weddings. Typically in Egypt, the father would escort the bride, his daughter, uh, to the home of the groom. And then at that home, there would be a big feast and celebration in the wedding ceremony would take place there. In Greece, the wedding ceremony and feast was at the father of the bride's home. And here's something interesting. After the feast, all the wedding guests would escort the bride to her new home where the marriage would be finalized, if, if you know what I mean. So the whole wedding, the whole, all the wedding guests, all, yeah, all the wedding guests would go and... Uh, Here's another fact. Uh, as the bride entered her new home, the wedding guests would throw nuts and dry figs at her as a symbol and token of fertility. So they would, they would, throw, they would throw those things at them. And then, then as the bride and groom are, are in their new home, the friends of the new mar newly married couple would remain outside and would sing songs about marriage. And all this, this is what it says, right? So, so they would do this, right? You know, escort, throw figs and nuts, and then stay outside and, uh, and sing songs of celebration and songs about marriage and love and all those things. So, you know, that, that's what happened in Greece. What do, you, what do you guys think? Should we start adopting some of these? Uh, no, no, no. No, yeah, he should, no. He should be thankful that you uh, that you don't live, in, especially in ancient Greece. You know, the more I read about marriage and weddings in ancient Greece and Rome, that would be probably the worst. Egypt and, and some of the other places were better than even Greece and Rome. But uh, 
Yeah, here's some of the practices. Well, tonight, I want to lead us on a study of the marriage process in the Bible. So there's, there's some similarities when you study, you know, in depth. But uh, I want to look at the Bible specifically. And what I really want to look at is the stage of betrothal, or really betrothal slash engagement as a concept, right? So we talked about dating last week. Tonight we'll talk about betrothal, engagement. And then next week when we end, we'll finish on, on a, a final message on marriage. So I want to talk about betrothal tonight. And the goal is as we study betrothal from the Bible, the goal is to learn some principles that should then guide us as Christians in handling marriage proposals and engagement. So that's the goal of tonight. Study this concept from Scripture and then find principles that can guide us in our own modern context today. So to begin understanding betrothal from the Bible, we need to review biblical covenants. Biblical covenants. And I have taught on covenants before in here and definitely uh, over on Sunday when I filled in in the past. And so you might remember, if you've ever heard me talk about covenants, you might remember that at some point I said that marriage is a covenant. Right? Marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. And if you may not, though, on the other hand, you may remember that, but you may not remember the definition of a covenant. So marriage is a covenant, but what is a covenant? Well, let me give you a simple definition, and that is a covenant is a sacred oath from one person to another or from two people to each other, and the oath is sacred because it typically involves God being a witness to and an enforcer of the promise made. So you're making an oath where you're invoking the Lord to witness your promise and to enforce your promise. And that is what makes it sacred. And it is a sacred oath. But for the purpose, well, really the important thing for our purpose tonight is to understand the process of making a covenant. So I gave you a simple definition, sacred oath that calls God as a witness But what is the process? What is the biblical process of making an oath? And as we see this process, we will see uh, how this relates to the concept of engagement and proposal. So to look and outline this process, I want to give you the example of what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to see that there are two steps involved in making a covenant. Same for Abrahamic covenant and then even the marriage, it will apply as well. So we're going to use this example. And the first step that we're going to see in the process of making a covenant is the process, or is the, the first step is making the promise. So it's the promise. That is the first step. And to show you this, turn with me to Genesis 12, verses, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. So this is the promise or what's recognized as the promise that that initiates the Abrahamic covenant, or at least it's the initial set of promises. So Genesis 12, verse 1, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, so Abraham was called Abram at this point. Later his name was changed to Abraham. So the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we see several promises being made to Abraham, a promise to make Abraham into a great nation, a promise to bless him, to make his name great, to curse those who mistreat him, and to ultimately bless all the nations of the earth through him. These are, these, these are the promises made. And these promises are understood as the first step in God making a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So this is the first step. However, what we find as we go through Genesis is that this covenant relationship is not officially established until a symbolic ceremony takes place, which is in Genesis 15. So Genesis 15, we'll turn there next, and I'm going to read, you, read to you verses 1 to 18, which outlines this, this ceremony. So Genesis 15, starting in verse 1, it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Then he said, that's Abraham, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now, stopping here for a moment, this question that Abraham is asking God, he's not asking out of a sense of doubt, as if he doesn't believe that God can fulfill the promise, because it's said in verse 6 that Abraham believed in the Lord. So this question isn't about doubt. What this question really is and what it's essentially asking is, How do I know that you won't change your mind? How can I be guaranteed that you will actually fulfill this promise? Not that you can fulfill this promise, but how do I know that you won't change your mind? How do I know that that the promise is secure? Well, God's response is to permanently bind himself to Abraham by making a covenant with him. And so reading the rest of this passage, starting back in verse 9, This is now the Lord speaking. It says, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he, Abraham, brought all these things to him, the Lord, and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. This is talking about their time in Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So here we see that God is officially making a covenant with Abraham. And the way in which he is doing it is he's having Abraham take these animals, sacrifice them, split them in half, create basically an aisle that the Lord can walk between. And then in a vision, God appears in a form of glory and then walks between the animals to establish this covenant. And what this symbolizes by God walking through the animals is essentially it's symbolizing that if for the person walking through, if they were to break their promise, if they are to break their covenant, then let their fate be like the animals which are beside them. Basically, let them be killed. Let them be torn apart because there's nothing more serious than making a covenant and keeping that promise. So that's the symbolism that the Lord is using and is used in other covenants as well to establish that this covenant is becoming established and, and set. Now, what's interesting here, just to keep in mind, is that with this covenant with Abraham, God is the only one who walks between the animals. And what that means is that God alone is making this covenant with Abraham. And he's not giving any conditions. He's not telling him, only if you do X, Y, and Z will I fulfill this. He's not having him walk through the covenant. This is a one-sided, unconditional covenant from God to Abraham. And what this means is that there's literally nothing that Abraham could do to cancel this covenant. No sin, no, nothing that Abraham could do would, would cause God to go back on this promise. Now, marriage, and we'll talk about this next week especially, marriage is not an unconditional covenant. There are some conditions. There are some, some if some conditions are violated, there would be grounds to break the, the marriage covenant. But here in this case, just so you know, the Abrahamic covenant is un, unconditional. But now let's go to marriage. So taking what we've covered in this Abrahamic covenant where you have a promise initially and then later on a ceremony that establishes the covenant, let's now apply this to marriage. And when it comes to the covenant of marriage, you also have two steps in making that covenant. You have the promise, which is equivalent to betrothal, or which is betrothal, equivalent to engagement today. And then you have the wedding ceremony, which is the public reaffirmation of the promise, just like God reaffirmed to Abraham his promises. And then, of course, in the wedding ceremony, the, the quote, getting to know each other after the ceremony. That's part of the marriage ceremony as well, okay? And that's what establishes the marriage covenant. So you have a promise, engagement, and then you have the wedding day and everything that is involved in the wedding day. Those are the two, the two steps. 
Now, there are a few important things to know about these two steps in making a marriage covenant. One, the one thing, the first thing that you need to know is that a couple was not officially in a covenant relationship until the public wedding ceremony and the wedding night. So the wedding day is when that marriage becomes real. And what this means is that physical purity is still required and was still required until after that public ceremony. Physical purity is still required. This is why Joseph in the New Testament, Joseph, a devout man, kept Mary a virgin despite being betrothed to her because it wasn't technically marriage yet. So that's the first thing to know. The second thing to know is in the Bible, there is no required time between the betrothal and the wedding. There's nothing that says you have to wait this long before you can go from engaged to married at the wedding. No required time except what would be customary to prepare all the arrangements. So plan for the wedding, prepare all the marriage arrangements, all those things would be necessary. But theoretically, once those things were complete and done, then marriage is the next logical step. So that's the second thing to know. No required time uh, that betrothal has to last, so no, no time limit. Number three, here's the third thing to know. In the Bible, although the marriage was not officially established until the wedding ceremony, because betrothal involved a promise, the betrothal was still binding on that couple. And what I mean by that is that from God's point of view, a betrothed woman or an engaged woman in the biblical sense was considered bound to her betrothed man like a wife to a husband. So legally, in the eyes of God, the commitment was established at the betrothal. So just to show you this, turn with me to Deuteronomy 22. I'm going to read you a few verses from starting in verse 22. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, and I'll read to verse 27. It reads, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So this is talking about adultery in a marriage relationship. Now verse 23 says, If, if there is a girl who is a, who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because she, he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. So here are these laws relating to a betrothed, engaged woman from verses 23 to 27. And what we see, well, one, one thing we can point out is that this engaged girl is a virgin, right? So this is further proof that in that engagement stage of the relationship, physical purity was still expected to be maintained. 
On the other hand, the next thing that we see is that this engaged girl is considered all, all intents purposes committed as a wife to a husband because of that promise, because of that engagement. So if another man has intimacy with her or, or has intimate actions with her, that is treated as and punished as adultery, even though the marriage has not yet officially been established in the wedding ceremony. So we see this very clearly. In fact, the only way out of a betrothed relationship was either through death, so if one of the people died, you were obviously out of that engagement, or actual divorce. You would have to go through actual divorce proceedings to get out of an engaged relationship. And that is why if you think to the Gospels with Joseph, when he initially thought that Mary was pregnant because of an affair, he sought to divorce her. He was going to do it quietly because he was a righteous man, but that's why it mentions that he sought divorce initially because that betrothal was, was considered binding, and divorce or death were the only ways to, to get out of it. So for the sake of summary and review at this point, we've covered two stages in establishing a covenant, including a marriage covenant. One, the promise, so the promise to marry with, with marriage, and then number two, the public ceremony, the public wedding ceremony in the case of marriage. Those are the two steps. And then we also saw three important points that we needed to understand. One, a couple is not married and free to engage in intimacy until after the wedding ceremony. So that's the first thing. Second thing, there is no time required between the promise to marry and the wedding ceremony except for what time is necessary to make all of the plans in the arrangements. And then number three, we saw that in the Bible, a promise to marry was considered binding, being nullified or dissolved only through death or divorce. So here, you now, so this is a snapshot of the marriage process in Scripture, specifically the betrothal stage of marriage. So now let's take that, that framework and apply it to our own modern context. How do these principles, how do these points apply to our modern marriage proposals and engagement? And how should a Christian handle marriage proposal and engagement? How should a Christian interact with this stage of relationship? Well, here's the first thing that we could say based on what we've covered. One, Physical purity is still required during the engagement stage of the relationship. So that is the first big principle that all Christians should be guided by. Purity is still required. Now, we've talked about purity, especially last week, so I'm not going to rehash that, but I will give one application of this in terms of engagement. One application is that it would be unacceptable to move in with your fiancé before the wedding. It would be unacceptable. And this is because, one, the temptation to be intimate would just be overwhelming if you were living with the person. No questions about that. And even, but even if you could theoretically remain pure, everybody on the outside, if you moved in with your fiance, everyone on the outside would assume that you're being intimate and your testimony in Christ would be damaged, right? So just one point of application that might seem obvious to some of you, but you would be surprised it's not always obvious. 
to everybody. So just want to establish that. Be unacceptable to move in before the wedding. All right, another principle, guiding principle, two, second one. Engagement should be as short as possible. This is the second principle to know. And the reason for this principle, well, it's related to the first one, and that is to maintain purity, right? The reality is, as much as you might struggle to maintain purity in a dating relationship, and you will struggle, engagement, it's going to be that much harder to maintain that purity. And one of the reasons is because when you're engaged, you've already made this promise, you've already agreed to marry each other, so it's very easy in your mind to think to yourself, well, I'm already, we're already going to be married in the near future, so it's okay if we get a little intimate. It's okay if we kind of you know, push the boundaries. That's the temptation that can, that can arise in your mind. And so it's that much harder to maintain purity in the engagement phase of a relationship, which then means that you want to make that stage short, as short as possible, as reasonably possible in order to protect the relationship from that temptation. All right, number three, and really this is going to be the final big principle, but we'll talk a little bit about this. So number three, the third principle that a Christian should apply to engagement is this, making a proposal and accepting a proposal should be viewed as a binding promise to marry one another should be viewed as a binding promise. And the reason I say this is because in the non-Christian culture, this is not how engagement is often treated. Often, engagement is nothing more than like a slightly more committed version of a boyfriend and girlfriend relationship in the non-Christian world and culture. And so you'll see among non-Christian secular cultures or, or couples you'll see people that are engaged for like years. They propose, they wear the, wedding, the, the, the engagement ring, but they, they have no wedding date set. They have no plan to set a wedding date anytime soon. And they just kind of stay in this engagement phase for years. And it doesn't really mean anything at that point. Also, in some non-Christian relationships, here's a scenario that might happen. And usually it's, it goes this way is the girl will want more commitment from the boyfriend. Where it's been, really, they want the, the commitment of marriage. They want that security, right? Especially if the relationship is going on, has been going on for multiple years. And so she'll pressure in either direct or indirect ways. And then sometimes the guy, in response to this, he'll propose to her, he'll give her a ring. And in his mind... This kind of shows, oh, yeah, I am committed to you. At least I'm more committed than just you being a girlfriend. It maybe relieves some of the pressure that she's putting on him, but it also doesn't bind him to her in marriage with all the legal consequences that come through that marriage. So it's kind of like this stopgap for some guys to, oh, yeah, I'll propose, give her a ring, but it's just, it's just to get her off my back, but not really requiring much more than just the ring in terms of, of commitment. This is how, not saying that every non-Christian couple treats engagement like this, but this is, more, this is at least more common than, than it should be. Well, the bottom line is this. If a proposal 
is not connected to a genuine promise to marry the other person as soon as reasonably possible, then in reality, that proposal is not any different than asking a girl to be your girlfriend or a guy to be your boyfriend. It's really no different at that point unless it's a genuine promise to get married as soon as reasonably possible. Now, I do want to say for the sake of qualification, in terms of this commitment behind engagement, that there are going to be situations where breaking off an engagement is not only justified, but even the better thing to do. Situations like extreme neglect, uh, abuse, cheating, and, you know, unfaithfulness, all those reasons, and then there are probably others, and, and we'll, talk, we'll even talk about some of these reasons more next week. But some of these reasons and others could give ju- really sincere justification, biblical justification to break off that engagement. It doesn't mean that that's, a, that, that that's a happy occasion or that that is what anyone should hope for, obviously, but just want for the sake of qualification to mention that there may be times when breaking off an engagement is necessary and justified. However, for Christians, that should never be the case. And for Christians, proposal for marriage and engagement should be viewed as a serious binding promise and commitment. And what this then means for us as Christians is that if you are not certain that you want to marry that person, if you're not certain, or if you do not have the blessing from trusted authorities in your life, right? It's like your parents, even pastoral figures in your life. If you don't have their blessing, if you are not certain, then you should never propose or accept a proposal. It's better to hold off, to delay, Girls, it would even be better to say no. Not that you would have to, to break off the relationship, but it would be okay to say no at that moment until you are certain or, or you have that blessing well, and you have that blessing from those authorities in your life. Uh, it would be better to hold off than to make a rash, kind of quick, by rash I mean quick, a rushed kind of decision where now you're in this engagement relationship and you realize down the road that, oh my gosh, I, I want to get out of this. And now you have to break an engagement and go through all of the embarrassment, the damage to your testimony, all the negative, potential negative things that could come about that. So you want to be certain. You want the blessing of authorities. But I will say this, that if you are certain that you want to marry your boyfriend or girlfriend, And if you do have the blessing of trusted authorities in your life, then a marriage proposal can be one of the most joyful and memorable moments of your life. And it can be. It can be. So be certain. Seek counsel and blessing from parents, pastoral figures, and ultimately make the right decision. Taking everything that we've covered in this marriage series and applying all of that to this decision. Well, as we end tonight, we're going to end in prayer and really want to pray that God would give us wisdom in this area of life. And I know most of you are not, pretty much all of, all, most, pretty much all of you students, uh, are not approaching engagement. 
even if you're in a, in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. But Lord willing, one day you will, so you'll need to know this. And if you one day become parents, you'll need to know these things for your children, potential children as well. So let's pray that God would give us wisdom in this area of life. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word and what we can learn from your word. Uh, Lord, I just pray for all of the students here and even us parents and us adults here that we would adopt a biblical mindset when it comes to not only just relationships as a whole, but especially this area of proposal and engagement, Lord, that, that we would be men and women of our word, that we would make wise decisions as we, as we encounter these various things and, and uh, relationships like this, Lord, just that you would be with us, Lord, and guide us. We pray, I pray for all these students here that you would bless them in their studies at school and all of their activities after school, and, and uh, Lord, that uh, you would just continue to bless us all and provide for us. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student. <laughs>